Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, January 15, 2017. The share ID for Friday, January 13, is 9478. That's 9478. This morning, A Vision for You presents Take Away My Difficulties. The 12 steps, as outlined in the big book, represent a process resulting in a spiritual awakening, a personality change sufficient to overcome compulsive overeating. What distinguishes the 12-step process from self-help programs is that this change is done to us, not by us. We agree to let God build with us, changing our attitudes, personalities, thoughts, feelings, and beliefs. We're offering ourselves to our higher power. We want certain things to happen to us, relief from the bondage of food, relief from the bondage of self, difficulties taken away, not for those things to benefit us, but so that those things will help us benefit others. Through the process of the 12 steps, we become less and less interested in ourselves and more and more interested in what we can contribute to life. Joining us today is Rebecca F., a recovered compulsive overeater from Connecticut. Rebecca is devoted to living this 12-step way of life, and she's here to share her personal experience, strength, and hope with us this morning. Welcome to the line, Rebecca. Thank you, Leah. Hi, everyone. I'm Rebecca F., from Connecticut, and I am a compulsive overeater. Can you hear me okay, Leah? Yes, I can. Okay, thanks. Um, It occurred to me that everybody who's anybody in OA is at the OA birthday party (laughs) this weekend, which I am not. Um, And so no wonder I got asked to speak today because all the real speakers are indisposed. <laughs> um, well, happy birthday, OA, and um, thank you, Leah, for this opportunity. Um, I'll take it when I can get it, and you know I'm just joking, and it's hard to make a joke uh, when uh, you're on a telephone line where everyone's muted, but I've heard you do it, so I took a chance myself. Um <clears throat> I also want to acknowledge Leah because, uh, well, for many, many reasons, but this one in particular is that Leah does such a beautiful intro for every single special edition, and this has been going on for a long time, and somehow you um, make it poignant, Leah, and um, uh, apropos to the topic and the speaker, and um, I really appreciate that. I'm sure it's not easy. It's it's a task because just preparing to speak once in a blue moon is a task for me. Uh, when I was asked to come up with a quote from the big book to share on that had special meaning to me, I came up with take away my difficulties. It comes from the third step prayer on page 63. God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and to do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the 
bondage of self that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties, that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. I've been thinking about how on page 87 we're told not to ask for anything for ourselves, that is, unless others would be helped. Yet we get to ask God to take away our difficulties so that others will be helped by witnessing God's handiwork and perhaps those of you who witness that may want a piece of the action for yourselves. Um, You know, attraction, not promotion. So I got to thinking I could tell you all the difficulties that God has taken away from me so that you can bear witness. I mentioned it to my sponsor, and she pointed out that the difficulties that we ask God to take away are our defects of character. That's not what I had in mind. I thought I could just tell you about all the great things that have happened to me since I picked up the spiritual toolkit presented in the big book. But I didn't want to be redundant, so I went back and listened to my special edition recording on this meeting from September 6th. 2015, and I realized I pretty much already said almost all of it. Uh-oh, now what am I going to do? I've actually been praying for God to take away my difficulties when it comes to what to say about taking away my difficulties. I realized that my sponsor was right. What else is new? I've I'm going to delve into how I've changed rather than focusing on how the circumstances in my life have changed. And to the degree to which uh, they have, hopefully you'll see how some of my selfishness, dishonesty, self-seeking, and fearful ways have been taken away. I've been in a way for almost seven years, abstinent for five and a half years, and recovered for almost five years. I used to compulsively overeat. Now I don't. I have very specific parameters around what, when, and how much I eat, and I stick to them. My appearance has changed. I was fat. Now I'm not. It's most of what I thought about. Clothes options were extremely limited, no style, camouflage for my bulges. I was mistaken for being pregnant on a number of occasions. Now I'm small. I don't think about my size very much anymore, and when I do, it's not in angst. It's with satisfaction. It's easy to find clothes now, and getting dressed is no problem. Now I have at least a little bit of style. I used to worry. Now I don't, for the most part. Um, I used to wake up and lay in bed with doom and gloom. Uh, Nothing was good enough. Me, my husband, our family, our home, our jobs, relationships. Yesterday, the day's events from the day, you know, yesterday's events or whatever day it was I was waking up and who said what and how um, things had didn't go my way would replay over and over in my head 
Now I wake up in good spirits. If I ever wake up during the night, I pray and meditate until I fall back to sleep or until it's time for me to get up. No matter what time of day, when I have a problem, I have a method to finding a solution and regaining a sense of peace. I had no relationship with the higher power. Now my higher power, whom I choose to call God, is everything to me. I was controlling. Now I'm not. Well, at least not as much. This is particularly evident in my relationship with my husband. I used to be a know-it-all. Now I see that a lot of the time I'm wrong or that I don't know stuff and I admit it. And I want to give you some examples. I didn't know that addiction is a disease and that you and I are not bad people because we compulsively overeat. I thought I knew a lot about nutrition and diets. I did not know about the allergy of the body and the obsession of the mind. I didn't know that it's easier to have none than to have some, that it's impossible for me to have some when it comes to my binge foods. I thought my husband was wrong and I was right most of the time. It turns out to be the exact opposite. I thought I was a better parent than my husband and that he should defer to me. Not. He is the stable, diligent parent after all. Now I am teachable. One time I thought I knew the way to where we were going better than my husband. I didn't. For all I know, there were many other times that that happened, but once it happened since I've been recovered, it hasn't happened again. Um, because I worked through it with my sponsor and I made amends and so so it goes. Uh, holidays are different now. My husband couldn't do anything right, so why do anything at all? So, okay, that's just my little note to myself, but I want to kind of elaborate on that. Um, since I've recovered and let go of my perfectionism and thinking that things had to be done a certain way and I've backed off, my husband and my family have, particularly my husband, have shown up in a huge way. Um, And I can see now that the way I used to be um, suppressed their involvement in family activities because I would always redo it or complain about the way it was done or have to do it myself to begin with. So nobody else got particularly involved. For instance, um, the times that these things really show up in an obvious way for me is holidays because they're big events and uh, they happen every year, and so you can I can see the progression and the change in our lives since I've recovered. So um, this past Thanksgiving, I did very little to contribute to um, the event, even though it was at our house, as it almost always is. 
um, it used to be that I did everything, practically everything. And um, I did very little. And my husband did most of it. And I was more of the helper than him being the helper. And it was such a nice role reversal. And um, it was so great to see him shine and him get the glory and um, him do all the work, frankly. You know? And so when I came home from work and the tables were all brought up from the basement and laid out and set with tablecloths and everything, and the tablecloths were these old uh, Thanksgiving plastic tablecloths that we, I haven't used in years because I've upgraded to cloth. Um, so, initially, you know, my first thought was, oh, the plastic tablecloth, you know. But um, they looked great, and it really brought back memories. And um, what do I care what the tablecloths are? I'm just so glad that my husband... Um, did all that work and I didn't have to do it. And so I knew, you know, just to be grateful instead of to be critical, which is what I would have done in the past. And then um, Christmas comes and um, he and I, we have an artificial tree and we set up the tree together, but he and my da- our daughter decorated the tree. I wasn't involved in that at all. And um, I like to put every ornament we have on the tree. And uh, he isn't Jewish, but he would say, if he knew the word, that it was Ungapachkin. Well, he and my daughter decorated the tree, and they were very selective about what went on it. And it was uh, more minimalistic than anything I would have thought to do myself. And um, I saw the box of all the unused ornaments and bows and things that I've made in the past or whatever. And you know what? It was fine. In fact, and I call it a Zen tree. That was our Zen tree. Um, it was beautiful and simplistic and not um, overly done. And I could appreciate it. So um, I'm learning. And I'm grateful, and I can just see how um, it's not my way or the highway anymore. Um, Let's see, where did I leave off? Um, I discovered I was on my high horse with my sister. My sister and I have had a very rocky relationship, and... um, Uh, A year and a half ago when I shared, I did say that my resentment had been lifted at least for the time being. And um, it it seems as though even though it had been lifted, there are degrees. And so more of my resentment has been lifted, I would say. And uh, this time it came from uh, visiting her and my mom. She lives with my mom now and takes our mom and takes care of our mom and um, I realized while I was there that I was really thinking I was better than her and I was like I said on my high horse that's the 
those are the words that came to me to describe myself. It was very unbecoming when I realized it. Um, I could hear myself in my mind keeping score. Every time I did something that my mother appreciated or took care of something that was broken in their house or, um, I don't know, treated you know, my mom to a healthy meal or whatever it was, I kept like chalking it up, you know, uh, keeping score of, oh, I did this better than my sister does it or whatever, you know. And it was oh, such an awful realization to see that I was competing with her. And, um, and that this is a sick person. Please save me from being angry. Please grant me the same tolerance, compassion, pity, and patience I would cheerfully grant a sick friend. You know, it would be, I told some people this, uh, so you may have heard it before, that it it was as if I was like the third grade bully in the schoolyard picking on the weakest kid in the class. And then priding myself because I was, you know, stronger than that person. It's just so sick in the head, absurd. And all these years, I couldn't see my side of the street to the degree that I was able to this past visit. And um, now I have so much compassion for her and appreciation for her and her situation and uh, her limitations, and um, I, I have no, there's no good that comes from me thinking that I'm better than my sister, and it isn't even true, you know, it's just dishonest. So um, I thank God from the bottom of my heart that I can see that now, and the resentment truly is gone, finally. I feel it's, it's for real. Um, so that brings me to how I used to be dishonest and I was dishonest with myself about being dishonest. I couldn't even see. And that example with my sister is one of them, you know, um, but some others are that I made financial decisions without discussing them with my husband in the past. And now I do discuss them with my husband. I was living one month beyond my means on credit, and now I'm not. And um, I tried to please people by being what I thought they wanted me to be instead of living an authentic life. And I think I do that less now. You know, it's progress, not perfection. I don't know that I'm 100% there with the people-pleasing thing, but I have an awareness that I didn't even have a clue about before. Um, I wouldn't admit weakness to people I felt I was in competition with. Um, That supported my superiority complex, which I didn't even know I had. And with others, I'd admit all my weaknesses and assume uh, the inferior position. And... um, I don't need to be better than others now, and I don't need to be worse than others now. I get to be 
the same as everybody else now. And it's not that I ever was better or worse. I just thought that I was or uh, projected as if I was. And it's, um, it's a lie. It's dishonest. Um, I had secrets. I had things I was ashamed of. And now I know I have to talk about things like that and work out solutions with the help of God, my fellows in OA, and the steps. And one example I can give you of that is that um, I was uh, not taking care of a billing um, situation at my work, which was causing me to lose money. And I was very embarrassed by it, and it was pretty much a secret. And um, through the steps and the help of my sponsor and my higher power, um, I don't have that problem anymore. It's been resolved, and now the billing does get done, um, usually not by me, by someone else. Uh, but nonetheless, I couldn't even see my way out of a paper bag before to how I was going to resolve that problem. And God basically resolved it for me. Um, I had no direction. I had an is-that-all-there-is kind of outlook on life. And now I have a purpose. I have a message of depth and weight. I have joy. I have contentment. I have neutrality. I have a design for living. And I have discipline. Um, Let's see. I asked my husband if he had anything to add when I was trying to figure out what I was going to say um, today. So I asked him if he had any thoughts on how I've changed since I've been in recovery. And here's what he had to say. He said, it's hard to pinpoint because it's like watching hair grow because we're together so much. Um, But um, he said that my involvement in the program has imbued a great amount of spirituality and serenity on our household and our familial relationships. And that by default and osmosis, he's getting the benefit. Uh, He said that I lead by example and it rubs off the ones around me. That he used to be grouchier and now he's happier. That we don't argue the way we used to. And that we like each other more. And... um, I have a little story, a recent story about a situation with my husband. It was near the even um, of this year. And uh, I had a lot going on the day before and really burned the candle at both ends uh, the Friday night before New Year's Eve. I got to bed late. I had to wake up extremely early on the New Year's day because I had a lot going on in the morning and throughout that day. And by the time I got home, I was really exhausted. And um, we went and watched fireworks uh, at 6 o'clock, and then we had dinner together. We 
played a couple of games and I fell asleep at 10.30. And the next morning, uh, we got up, we went for a walk, and while we were walking, I apologized for falling asleep so early. And he was feeling... um, the need to apologize for not accepting an invitation to a party for New Year's Eve, which he knew I would have liked to have gone to, but he's a homebody. So um, he likened it to the gift of the Magi. I don't know if you know that story, but just briefly, um, a couple who's poor, Christmas is coming, and the wife has long, beautiful hair, and she has her hair cut and sells it to buy a chain for her husband's pocket watch to give him for Christmas. And he, at the same time, sells his pocket watch to buy his wife a comb for her long, beautiful hair. And um, somehow my husband thought that our story of um, me apologizing for falling asleep early on New Year's Eve and him probably being relieved because then he didn't have to feel as badly about not accompanying me to a party. Uh, Even, you know, just made it fine. And um, in the past, I wouldn't have apologized for falling asleep because I wouldn't have been willing to let my guard down or humble myself or even see that I had done anything that was worthy of an apology. And what it did was it just gave us a moment that brought us that much closer together and made the holiday so much more special because we just love each other so much and um, we can be honest with each other and real. And um, I wasn't that way before. I had too much going on in my crazy head to be real with my husband. And uh, the next one I want to bring up is um, that I was afraid a lot and I had a lot of fears and I think they held me back. I am not completely free of fear now, but it doesn't usually stymie me. Um, I, I usually, as far as I can tell, uh, go forth anyway and do what I believe God is directing me to do, what is the next right thing, even if it seems scary. So uh, the most recent example I can think of about that is that um, I went to South America in September to visit our daughter, who's in the Peace Corps, and I went by myself. And... I made all the arrangements myself as well. And um, I I don't think I would have gone had I not been in this program and been recovered. If I was still in the food and still overweight, um, and I wouldn't have had the coverage at work to be gone for two and a half weeks for one thing. presumably, based on the way things used to be in my life. And um, I probably wouldn't have been able to afford it 
and I wouldn't have had the courage to go someplace so far away where uh, they don't speak English all by myself. I just wouldn't have had the confidence. And um, there was a little bit of fear about doing that even now, but I did not let that stand in my way, and I just put my trust in my faith in God instead of my finite self. And I went, and it went very, very well. And I could see that the fear was, um, it's like the boogeyman. There was really nothing to be afraid of other than my own shadow, maybe, you know. Um, so um, I met my daughter in Buenos Aires, and we vacationed there for a few days. And then we, she took me to Paraguay, and um, and I have a little story about a couple of little stories about being there and um, how this program and my higher power helped me. So the first story is that when we arrived in her town or close to her town, we got off a bus at a gas station and it was dark and we were waiting for um, a friend of hers to pick us up. And a woman who had also gotten off the bus asked my daughter for um, a ride into the town where my daughter lives. And so she said, well, someone's picking us up, but I'll ask him when he comes. And of course she you know, took the ride with us. And it was a long way in the dark. And then finally we got to where there were buildings with lights on. And um, eventually he pulled over to the side of the road in front of the house. And um, my daughter and the driver in the front seat and this woman and I are in the back seat. And um, she doesn't speak English. And she speaks uh, probably Guarani is the um indigenous language that's spoken there. Maybe she speaks a little Spanish. So anyway, I reached into the trunk because it was an SUV and I pulled out her bag and I handed it to her and I said, adios. And she said, ah, gracias, adios. And she gets out of the car. And then after she starts walking away, uh, my daughter and her and the driver get out of the car. And I'm like, what are you two getting out of the car for? And they're like, this is Dina's house. This is my daughter's house where she lives. Now, I just assumed we were dropping off the woman who was sitting next to me, but we weren't. We were going to Gina's first. And what do I know that I think I know, okay? I know nothing, and I'm acting like I know something, and I don't even realize that I'm acting like I know something. So I was mortified because I sent this poor woman on her way. I have no idea how far we were from her destination. And I just assumed that we were dropping her off. So, um, you know, it's a hard lesson to learn how we think we know and we don't. So um, I did ask 
the driver to go look for her and make sure she was all right and see if she needed a, an additional ride. Um, but they seemed to think it wasn't really a problem. But anyway, um, that was uh, one thing that happened. And then uh, I, you know, get into my daughter's house and um, it's very dirty. And I'm a little um, shocked at how dirty it is. And, like, I can't even really brush my teeth in the bathroom sink because the sink is so dirty. So I start scrubbing the sink, and it's late, and we've been traveling all day, and, you know. Um, We share a twin-size bed with a mosquito netting covering us, and there's cows roaming freely throughout the town, in her yard, on the road, everywhere, and they're pooping wherever they poop anywhere. So uh, the next day when you're walking in her town, you have to dodge the plops of poop. Um, The toilet paper goes in the trash, not just in Paraguay, but in uh, Buenos Aires, presumably in all of South America, I don't know. It does not go down the toilet. And um, at one point, uh, while we're walking the first day, I said to my daughter something about um, it not being modern there. And she said, oh, you don't think it's modern here? And I realized I, I have no idea what the definition of the word modern is. And uh, she was calling me on it, you know, to the people there, they live a modern life. They have cell phones and um, they watch sports on TV and they have dishes and stuff. So who am I to say it's not modern? Um, so I'm feeling very um, out of my element and wrong uh, about everything. (laughs) And all of a sudden, I swear it was God, put these two words into my head that came out of nowhere, and they were culture shock. And I went, oh, I'm experiencing culture shock. And all of a sudden, I felt, this sense of peace, that there's a name for what I'm doing wrong and thinking wrong, you know, and that it's so common that everybody knows what culture shock is. Um, So I can cut myself a break for not being able to relate to what it's like there. And um, to just accept that I'm out of my element and it's understandable that I'd be clueless, you know. So, um, and then there were opportunities for the rest of my visit to have that conversation with my daughter, with some of her friends, and people uh, were reassuring that, you know, when when you join the Peace Court, um, you go through a uh, a very intensive training to uh, assimilate or understand the differences between the cultures. And I just, you know, didn't have any of that. And so um, 
it was okay. I could just relax and be all right with the fact that I was wrong, you know. So that that was a great um, God experience for me, God taking care of me experience. And then the second story I want to tell you about um, that happened while I was there is when I, we went to leave, my daughter had us take a cab to the airport and I told her she didn't have to get out of the cab, that I'd be fine. She insisted on getting out of the cab and coming in and making sure I was checked in at the gate or the desk or whatever. And um, it turns out that my flight was delayed to back to Buenos Aires. And um, we weren't sure what to do. Should she leave? Should she stay? Should it blah, 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 blah. We didn't know what to do. Because... Um, Based on what they were telling me, I was going to miss my connection once I got to Buenos Aires. And there were two separate airlines, and I booked them myself. So they didn't have any involvement in fixing the other one. So um, I knew just what to do. I said, I need to just go sit down on a bench and pray and pause and pray and wait for directions. It was so, um, it's built into me now. You know, it doesn't come up that often that I'm faced with these, you know, strange circumstances. But when I was, I knew just what to do. And so she said, okay. You know, she she doesn't really get the whole thing, you know, and she's not a believer and all that. But she went along with it. And so we found um, a bench outside And we sat down and I just closed my eyes and took a deep breath and I prayed and I meditated for just a little bit. And the answer came to tell her to go and that I would just stay put at the airport and I'd be fine because she had a life to live and she'd already put her life, you know, for me for two and a half weeks. And, um, and that, I couldn't think of anything else other than, you know, that. So I said, I'll be fine. You go. So she left and I hung around the airport and um, eventually the flight got canceled. So when it got canceled, the airline shuttled all of us who were supposed to be on that flight to a hotel for the night and rebooked us for the next day. And um, I get on this shuttle, and there's a man sitting across the aisle from me, and I asked him if he spoke English, and he did. And he ended up taking me under his wing and explaining what was going on. The hotel we were being brought to was um, the hotel he had just checked out of, so he knew it well. And he had a phone where I could call Delta, whereas um, I didn't, I couldn't, I couldn't, I didn't have the capability to do that. And I tried to get the airlines to do it for me while I was in the airport and they couldn't for some reason connect with Delta and help me. Uh, So anyway, I'm standing in line to check in at the desk. I'm using this guy's phone to call Delta. 
I manage to tell them a certain amount of information and we get cut off. But I think it was enough. I'm not sure. But I think that might have something to do that I let them know that I was going to miss my connection or I may have already missed it. I can't even remember. But anyway, um, it turns out that the hotel that we're in, which is beautiful, and they give us a voucher for dinner, um, was pretty close to where my daughter still was staying in the city. So I texted her, which I did have um, texting capability, and I let her know where we were, and he and I went for dinner, and he was able to uh, order for me in Spanish, or, yeah, it must have been Spanish, um, what I needed to have an abstinent dinner. And I got an abstinent dinner, and then my daughter shows up, and after dinner, he takes us up to the roof of this hotel, which is has this panoramic view of the city of Ascension, the capital of Paraguay, and um, it has a built-in uh, 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 swimming pool on the roof and beautiful lounge chairs. It was much too cold to really enjoy, you know, the facilities, but we got to see them and it was beautiful. And we certainly had beautiful views um, of the night sky and the night, the lights and everything. So, um, so my daughter ended up spending the night in my room in this great hotel. I actually took, um, a shuttle back to the airport at 1 a.m. I did have a very luxurious bath, and I don't get baths too often. I don't have a bathtub in my own home, so whenever whenever I'm in a hotel with a bathtub, I always like to indulge. And um, she got to stay in this hotel that she said was the nicest hotel she's ever been in. And the next morning, she got to uh, have the full breakfast, the free breakfast buffet, and um, and just had a really nice night that was unexpected, and we got this extra bonus time together, which was just so fun and exciting, you know. So anyway, um, I picked the earlier flight of the two that were being offered because I didn't want to take any chances, and my flight did go out on time at 3 a.m., uh, the other guy picked the later flight so he could sleep, and his flight did not go out. He was delayed another something like seven hours. So um, I, again, feel like God directed me to make the best choice for me. And when I got to Buenos Aires, uh, the Delta counter wouldn't be opening for a number of hours to work out with them what was going to happen. And I was aware of the fact that it could, could cost me thousands of dollars to book a new flight home because it was last minute and because um, one airline didn't have any um, responsibility to the other. So I just trusted in God and um, poked around the airport and um, I ended up kind of knowing every inch of that terminal and I came across um, an an art exhibit in the airport which I never would have seen if my flights were on time and I was just you know 
doing what was originally intended, you know, on the schedule. And there in this art exhibit was this enormous, it was probably made out of fiberglass, um, heart, a huge, huge heart. And it was covered in graffiti. I mean, really, really covered in graffiti. And none of it was in English, I don't think. Um, So I couldn't read what the words were. But with all this graffiti, right smack in the middle of the heart, in very large, distinct, clear letters, were the words, Te amo, which means I love you, and then my daughter's name, Gina, G-I-N-A, in huge dark letters. There was nothing else on the heart that was really, that really stood out except for this, and it was her name. It was, I don't know, let's call it remarkable. So, of course, I have a picture of it, and I text it to my daughter, and I look at it sometimes in my phone. So, um, so eventually the Delta counter does open up, and it's very hard to find because it's in this makeshift temporary trailer, and I've been walking back and forth by it a million times, hunting for it because people keep directing me to it, and I don't realize what I'm looking for. But I finally find it. And I have to wait until someone's actually in there. And eventually, someone is in there, and I explain what happened. He does speak English, and um, he has me wait. And he comes back and says, you're all set. You're booked on tonight's flight. And um, there is no, no additional charge. And, uh, but the, that flight is delayed, and it's not going out until like 1130 at night. So I have from 9 a.m. to 11.30 at night in Buenos Aires, and and believe it or not, all I took with me was a carry-on and a backpack, which, again, uh, that never would have happened in my former life to be able to go away on any kind of a vacation with just a carry-on, especially for two and a half weeks. So um, I asked him if he would watch my bag so that I could go into the city for the day. And he said he wasn't supposed to do it, but he would do it. And I took a picture of him and a picture of his name tag so I wouldn't forget who to find when I got back later in the day. And he said he would be back later. And I figured out on my own how to get to the city and had an extra day by myself in Buenos Aires. And the fact that we'd already been there for five days prior, I had kind of a sense of how to get around and what to do and was able to navigate and have a really nice day for myself and then get back to the airport. And um, and I did find him. Um, he wasn't there at first, but I just trusted. And eventually he was there in time for me to get my bag. And, uh, and I walked away and I... Um, was pretty far away heading to my terminal and I realized that I still had some Buenos Aires money in my pocket and so I walked back and I handed it to him as a tip which he said he didn't 
need or expect or want or anything, but I was so happy to give it to him. And I was done there anyway, so it was perfect. Um, and and uh, the second leg of my flight, he gave me a first-class seat. That was the only seat that was left on that plane. So in my entire life, I never thought I would ever sit in first class, and I did. So, um, so that's new since the last time I spoke on this line in a special edition. And, um, wanted to share all that with you. And um, there's more. Let's see. Oh, okay. I'm almost done here. Um, I have. Uh, more meaningful relationships now, both inside and outside of OA. Um, My friends from the past I feel closer to, and I have a lot of new friends, and I can't get over how profound my relationships are with my OA friends. I always thought that once I graduated from college, that was the end of my uh, window of opportunity to make friends and it just isn't true this program is awesome that way um okay i have a note here i thought my difficulties were caused by others now i know my troubles are of my own making and that as long as i'm willing to look at my side of the street admit my powerless and unmanageability believe in the infinite power and grace and glory and love of my higher power, make a decision to turn to her, take inventory and see the exact nature of my wrongs, admit my humanness to God, myself and another human being, be entirely ready for God to remove them from me, ask her to as she sees fit and make amends and keep doing the deal as someone on this line says, uh, they do get taken away. So in closing, I alone am my worst enemy. I alone am the cause of all my difficulties. By myself, I am controlling, inauthentic, demanding, and nothing is ever good enough. I ask God to take away my difficulties in the third step prayer, and sure enough, she does. She does it by accompanying me wherever I go. When God and I go together, I am safe and protected. God and I together are wife to my husband. God and I together are mother to our children. Together we are daughter, sister, niece, cousin, friend. God and I together get on a plane, go to the doctor, pick up the phone, prepare a meal, make plans, conduct business. God and I together belong to OA and attend meetings and do service. God and I together carry this message of recovery. And as it says in the third step prayer, God does for me what I could never do alone, not for my benefit per se, but so others like you perhaps will bear witness to my life improving day by day. As my self-imposed difficulties are taken away, they are getting replaced with God's power, God's will, and God's way of life. And I pass.
Thank you very much, Rebecca, for sharing your personal experience and insights with all of us and for providing examples of how you have undergone a profound alteration in your reaction to life. Thank you for such a beautiful presentation this morning. Rebecca's contact information will be given at the conclusion of this recording, so you can stay tuned for that. And now we will transition to questions. If you have a question for Rebecca, please press star 1 to unmute and identify yourself. Lauren S. Lauren S. All yes. right. Hold, any, hold on. Anyone else? Kathy K. Kathy K. Kelly K. Kelly K. All right. Well, let's start with Lauren S. Hi, Rebecca. Um, thank you. Thank you so much. Did you find a a large shift happen between after you took your step six and seven and then while you were doing your step eight and nine and your relationship with this other dimension past? Hi, Lauren S. Um, thank you for the question and I, in all honesty, don't recall. I'm <laughs> sorry to say, I don't remember a large shift between six and seven and while doing eight and nine. Um, let's see, let's see. Um, I do remember a huge shift in one, huge, 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 which I shared about in the last um, special edition uh, that I did. Um, but... Um, that was the shift about having to be entirely abstinent, you know. Um, as far as six and seven, eight and nine, um, in all honesty, I would say that when I did the steps through initially, I was just kind of going through the motions, you know. I was just doing what I was told. I really didn't have a clue. Um, I couldn't see shifting, you know. I mean, once I completed nine, the first time I did something that my husband got angry with me for, I I was shocked. I thought, I'm I I'm all better now, you know, I'm done, I'm thin, I'm um recovered. But it it wasn't like that. That when the lesson started coming after I got through it the first time. Then uh, when I did something egregious, I could uh, deal with it in real time instead of um, it's step, you know, doing it, doing the work once you're recovered, for me anyway, um, in real time, a 10th step in real time, that's when I really could start seeing things shifting. But when I was in it for the first time through, I I didn't know what was going on. I was just doing what I was told, following directions, following directions, just wanting, you know, to get to the top, so to speak, you know. And I can't say 
all of that was all that profound shift-wise. I hope that answers your question. <laughs> Thanks. Sure, maybe a little bit unconventional, but... <laughs> Thank you very much, Lauren. Kathy Kay. Thank you, um, Leah, for your service, and thanks, Rebecca. It was wonderful to hear you today, and I I do identify a lot with many of your stories, but the one I wanted to ask you about is um, uh, fear, and you said it's diminished quite a bit in your life since you became recovered, and that's been my experience as well, um, but it's also the character defect that has been most persistent in my life. And so I'm wondering what you do on a daily basis um, when fear reappears. Um, so I'll listen. Hi, Kathy Kay. Thank you for being there also and for your question. Um, on a daily basis. Well, again, uh, in addition to the prayers that I shared in the last special edition I gave um, of daily, morning and usually nighttime too, saying the set-aside prayer, the third-step prayer, and the seventh-step prayer, I've also added uh, the eleventh-step prayer. And... Um, you know, we're saying the serenity prayer twice a morning, Monday through Friday, on um, A Vision for You. And then uh, I go to a Saturday morning meeting. I say it then. And then there's the um, Our Father, we say, in our Thursday evening meeting. And, uh, you know, we say a prayer after this meeting, too, on Sunday. So I'm praying a lot. And... Um, I think all that prayer helps. I also uh, was taught right from the beginning to say the fear prayer whenever I have a fear. So uh, that's like right in my back pocket whenever I need it. And um, I can't say that I'm all that in touch with uh, fears, frankly, on a daily basis. But... I definitely was, I knew I was afraid about going to South America. And so I knew for a long time that I was going to be going. So I may have had a daily fear about that. Um, But I would say that just by doing what I do anyway in program, the prayers, the meditation, the helping others, um, the participating in meetings, the service, that all those things just keep me plugged in to trusting and relying and depending on God. So even though there might have been this like like little little piece of fear, it wasn't debilitating or uh, it didn't interfere with anything. It was more of just an interesting thing to be aware of. It, it wasn't a problem. And um, I just kind of dismissed the fear or, or allowed God to dismiss it for me, perhaps. But I can't say I specifically 
did anything or do anything on a daily basis other than that about fear. But when my flight was uh, postponed, I mean delayed, and I did not know what to do, and I had fear that I was going to miss my connection and that I was going to be at the mercy of people who I couldn't communicate with or whatever, you know, then I knew exactly what to do. Go sit down and pray and ask God to direct my attention to what he would have me be. And he did, you know. It, it just was very clear what, I should, what we should do. I could have done other things. I could have said, well, I'll go back with you and inconvenience my daughter or whatever. But I just, um, it just became clear. And um, let's see. Uh, oh, I might have fear about telling the truth to my husband about a financial decision because what if he doesn't, you know, it happened recently and I'll spare you the details, but I wanted to spend money on something and I thought about just doing it and I decided the clean thing to do was to discuss it with my husband first and that I was willing to not do it if he didn't agree. And so I went to him and and I probably had a little bit of fear, but I did it anyway. And he ended up being so receptive and agreed with me about the expenditure. And it just made doing it so much cleaner. I didn't have any guilt or like I was pulling a fast one or he'll never know or too bad about him or any of that because he was my partner in the decision and um and you know it's his money too so he gets the benefit of feeling generous with the expenditure as well you know so uh before i was robbing him of that and robbing him of having any input um so if he had said no i would have accepted it you know i wasn't attached to the outcome but it did end up going my way in the end. And um, uh, I had fear about speaking this morning, but that's not going to stop me. You know, I, I'm i just going to, you know, I, I prayed. I prayed, God, make it good enough. And if it's not good, I kept telling myself, if this isn't good enough and I fall on my face and look like an idiot, so what? And maybe I did. I don't know what y'all think, but it is what it is. And, you know, I really got that this whole idea of fear is the boogeyman. I got that um, in one of the things I was telling you about. Now I don't even remember which one it was. Oh, about going to South America by myself. There was nothing to be afraid of. There was no, there was nothing. You know, so it's just, I just, I guess I know that it's like almost falls into the category of dishonesty. There's nothing to be afraid of. And if I have fear, I'm making it up. I'm conjuring it up. And so the awareness of that um, helps, helps me give it to God and ask God to take it. It's useless. I, I have no use for that yeah thank you very much Rebecca that's very helpful thank you 
Okay, Kathy. Thank you. Thanks, Kathy Kay. I do want to mention that the previous Sunday special that's been referred to is entitled Beyond My Wildest Dreams. Rebecca S. spoke on September 6, 2015. You can find that recording on the website if you wish to do so. All right, Kelly Kay, please. Hi, Rebecca. Um, something that that really struck me was you said at one point about how you weren't even like honest about your dishonesties, and you know, I just want to briefly share. I'm coming off of two back-to-back days of relapse after 60 days of being abstinent. I worked with the sponsor. I you know, like went through the motions of everything I was told to do. And, you know, I'm realizing a new level of honesty that, you know, I wanted to complain to everyone about why nothing was changing. Meanwhile, I wanted to hold on to my right to be closed and not actually absorb, like in my heart, what was being said in these ideals, you know, and still expected to change in spite of that. And I was just wondering if, um, you know, I'm really at a place where I want to be humbled and totally surrender and be willing and more willing than I am right now. But I just wanted to know if you have any experience around, um, like, truly uncovering your own honesties and, you know, what were steps that you took to, like, fully surrendering and not bullshitting yourself, you know, I'd really like advice on that. Hmm. Kelly Kay. Let me see if I understand. You've been in program and you were abstinent and working the steps and had a relapse? Yeah, I had about 60 days um, sober and then Friday and yesterday I relapsed and um I know that the number one factor that contributed to that was my dishonesty around surrendering my life and like choosing to allow these principles to absorb into me. I thought more as, you know, something I wanted to get through so my life could change, but I didn't actually um, want to absorb any of this, um, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Like it was all intellectual. All right. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to answer your question. I don't know if I'm gonna be able to do a good job on the fly, but here's what comes to mind: is that, frankly, I was a know-it-all. I said that before, you know, and so um, I I didn't know that I didn't know just like you were saying, that um, I couldn't be honest about how dishonest I was. So um, if it helps at all, you know, keep that in mind, that that's the nature of an addict. Uh, And chances are I'm not the only one, so maybe you have that problem too. So um, self-knowledge, knowing that you think you know everything when you don't, kind of still avails us nothing but it's a start you know it's it's it's, you know it's a little bit of a realization to um admit that maybe i don't have a clue 
at least when it comes to this disease. And so um, for me, it was um, a combination of desperation, uh, willingness, and desire to recover, and um, he, listening to uh, this uh, the meeting that was before this meeting, but similar, um, where I was learning about the big book and learning from recovered people what the solution is, and um, then getting a sponsor who was recovered, who had what I wanted, so that I became willing to do whatever it was she did to get recovered so that I could have what she had. And um, then following her direction. And in step one of following her direction, I did experience a shift where I finally could see what what entire abstinence meant. And for me, until I was willing to and did put down every substance and behavior that was triggering the phenomenon of craving, I hadn't complete, until I did that, I hadn't taken step one. Once I did that, then I was able to truly take step one and then proceed with the rest of the steps. Step one being that I truly admitted I was powerless. And if I were to put extra food in my mouth or um, uh, food that contained binge ingredients in my mouth or, yeah, those, that's basically what it boiled down to for me. Um, in any way, shape, or form, if I did that, I would be saying, I have the power. I have the power. And I don't have the power. I'm powerless. But, but to me, putting that in my mouth meant that I wasn't conceding to my innermost self that I truly was powerless. I thought I had the power, and the two go together. So when I truly got that I couldn't have any, that's when I truly became willing to admit that I was powerless and that my life was unmanageable. And from there, now that the food was down 100%, because picking any of it up meant that I hadn't taken step one, that I thought I had power, all the other steps just did their magic, did the, not magic, but did what they do. You know, they just, they just work because the food was down. So I believe that many people who pick up their food is not entirely down. They are still hanging on to something that they aren't willing to admit is a problem for them, that they shouldn't be eating or drinking or doing with their food. And then, uh, yeah, I, I think it has to do with being entirely clean. That's my guess. Um, and that it does take time to get to that point of willingness to surrender that and to admit it. 
Thank you. Thanks, Kelly Kay. Who else has a question this morning for Rebecca? Star one to unmute. Jamie, I have a question. I didn't catch the first name. Jamie, uh, Larry. Oh, sorry, okay, Jamie. Larry, I got you. Is that Jamie? The first name. Jamie W. San Diego. Okay, Jamie. Jamie. W, thank you very much. Larry, anyone else? Linda D. Linda D. Yes. Okay, let's Leanne go. F. Leanne. Gotcha. Deanne, actually, with a D. Oh, thanks for the correction. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> All right. Marzi. Marzi. Jamie W, go ahead, please. Uh, thanks, Leah. And appreciate your your uh, your service this morning, and Rebecca, appreciate you as well. Related to what um, was just mentioned about the character defect of of know it all, of being a know it all, how did your behavior change related to that? You did mention an experience with your daughter when you were um, that was in Puerto Rico, sorry, um, and how you responded when when she kind of checked you on something. What about non-family members when those circumstances came up? How did your behavior change? Okay. Um, it was Paraguay, not Puerto Rico, but that's fine. Okay. And um, okay. that's, that's, that's okay. Uh, let's see, with other people, um, I, I got to conjure up some examples, and I don't know if I have any right in my frontal lobe here, ready to uh, think up. But uh, let's see. I know that I tend to be a know-it-all when I think um, that I know how other people should do their program, you know, and that, um, you know, I've got friends in face-to-face meetings who are um, eating things that I don't think they should be eating. And um, that that's why, you know, they're not experiencing the promises the way I think I'm experiencing the promises. Um, so, yeah, I I still struggle with that. You know, that that is, um, I usually make a comment and then retract the statement and say, I shouldn't have said that because I understand that everybody does it differently and, what do I know about you and all that? But um, uh, I think I do know it all when it comes to this kind of this part of it, you know, about the food. Um, and it is arrogant. And I, I need to, I often need to swallow my pride and apologize if I've overstepped my boundaries with that. So maybe now that I'm saying it out loud to all of you, um, once and for all, I'll stop being a know-it-all about other people's food. (laughs) Um, Let's see. How else am I a know-it-all? I have a daughter who lives with us who has some special needs, and she's uh, obese and Presumably, she's a compulsive overeater, even though technically you have to diagnose yourself. No one else can do it for you. Um, 
And um, I have become less um, pushy about what I think I know about the way she should live her life. Uh, not, I don't do it perfect, perfectly, but I would say our relationship has improved significantly over the past number of years as I mind my P's and Q's and uh, pause and watch what I say and when I say it and how I say it. Um, um, I'm going after this meeting to spend an overnight with two dear friends who are former eating buddies and they're still in the food and they're still struggling with the addiction, I believe. You know, again, they haven't diagnosed themselves that way. And um, I know it all <laughs> about that, I think. And so I'm going to have to be, um, this is the first time I've spent with them, so I'm going to have to really, you know, do what I've done before, which is to mind my own business, you know, and um, stick to iMessages or my side of the street or not discuss it at all and um, allow them to have their own experience, you know. I... I don't know why they haven't dared witness to what God has done for me and wanted what I have and become willing to do what I do. I, I, I don't know why these people, you know, it's, it's, that's life. You know, that's human nature. That's, it's, you know, some will, some won't, you know? So, um, I'll probably have more to say on that question tomorrow after spending 24 hours with them. But um, right now I'm looking forward to being with them and I love them dearly, exactly the way they are. And um, I, uh, I, I wish I had a better answer about the know-it-all thing, but it's food for thought. So I will start thinking about that more, Jamie W., and maybe we could talk another time about it. Thank you so much, Rebecca. Very helpful. Thanks, Jamie. Larry K. Hey, Leah. Can you hear me okay? Yes, very well. Okay, good. good. I was coming in from outside. Hey, when you're in Chicago, it's really cold, and in L.A., it's warm, so I'm going to take advantage of it. Rebecca, um, thank you so much for your share. I didn't hear all of it, so... My apologies if, you, if you've given voice to this question in, in regards to fear. Um, I wonder if there was a time, so the first part of the question is a yes or no, and then I guess if it's no, <laughs> you can't really comment on it. But if there was a time um, in program that you felt fear surrounding whether or not this practical program of action would work as you perceived it should work, um, did you have fear surrounding that at some point? early in your OA career or at any time? And if so, can you speak to that? And that's my question. Wow, Larry Kay. That's a juicy one. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I'm just honored that you're even on the phone right now because you missed 
my joke at the beginning about how oh, all, the, <laughs> all the movers and takers are in L.A., and that's how I got this gig. So who would expect you to be on this line when you're there? So welcome and thank you. Um, I'll try not to keep you too long. Um, so, yeah, I had fear. I thought, what if this is a cult, you know? And so then I Googled, is uh, OA a cult? And uh, 12-step a cult? And, of course, there is writing on the Internet about that. And there's people who believe it. And then there's people who um, explain what a cult is and how it doesn't, you know, does or does not fit into the um, definition of cult and blah, blah, blah. So, um, sure, I had fear that, uh, you know, I was, you know, drinking the Kool-Aid, basically, you know, the um, sugar-free Kool-Aid. But as it turns out, um, there's no dues or fees to pay, and you don't sign your life away on the dotted line, and you don't give up your worldly positions, and you're free to come and go as you please. And, um, you know, nobody's holding a gun to my head or making me do anything. Um, so I decided it's not a cult for myself. And um, let's see. Um, I would say that there's a little piece of me that wonders when I pray to God to uh, direct my attention to what he would have me be um, and to take the fear from me. What if he doesn't? You know, I have a fear that he's not going to come through. He or she is not going to come through um, on the uh, the prayer. And I'm going to, you know, be left, you know, holding the bag. Um, but I just do it anyway, you know. I, I had fear that even though I prayed to God about uh, this morning's uh, special edition meeting that I was, presenter um what if god didn't come through for me and it wasn't good enough and you know so then i had to tell myself that's okay too you know so even if i don't get what i think i should get when i ask for god to help me that doesn't mean he or she hasn't helped me it just means i didn't get what i thought you know um as it turns out this went okay, you know. I, I listened to my special edition from the time before, which, by the way, uh, the title on the Internet says Beyond Our Wildest Dreams, which is just a little typo because it, it was Beyond My Wildest Dreams. But anyway, in case you're trying to search for it. Um, and now I'm getting a call, so I'm going to have to get rid of that. Okay. Um, so, uh, let's see, fear that this program won't work. Well, the thing is, I really like my sponsor (laughs) and I really trust her and, um, it worked for her. And so I figured And I've been told. I mean, the promises in the big book, it's not like maybe, it's promises, you know. 
and there are enough of us on the line that convinced me that this program does work. And besides, what did I have to lose? I tried everything else. Why not try this and give it a fair shot, you know? So one day at a time, I just was willing to do it, you know, to see if it would work because um, it wouldn't be fair to me to, um, you know, ditch it before the, you know, before it happened or to um, only do half measure. You know, I had to give it my all to see if it would work. And I had every reason to believe it would work So, um, because it's worked in others. And you're an example and I'm an example. And, you know, I know the two of us and all of us others, Leah and everybody who talks on the line, um, we were killing ourselves with food, just like the people who might be questioning whether or not this program can work for them. That was us. And it works. So um, luckily we weren't Bill and had to be the only one and didn't have an example or even the first 100. You know, it's one thing when 100 people recover, but when thousands and thousands or millions of people recover, why not? I was willing to try every other thing and spend money. So... That's all I got. <laughs> no, that's adequate, Larry. <laughs> Thank you, Rebecca. More than adequate. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you, Larry, for the question. Rebecca, I just want to check with you. It's now 5 to 10 Eastern yeah. time. I want to make sure that you are available for another question or two or three, or would you like I to stop am. now? No, I am available, but I realize that my answers may be too long-winded. I apologize. Okay. Well, let's continue with Linda D. Hi, this is Linda D. Can I be heard? You can. Good morning, Rebecca. Thank you for your wonderful talk. It's always interesting how um, question when, you, when I get a question, uh, somehow higher power comes in and gets the person before me to ask something totally relevant. And so this may be a bit redundant, but I'll ask you anyway. Uh, when when you're facing a fear that is a big one, a big one where there might be real consequences, and I'm in a situation like that right now, and you do your 10 steps, and you have residual fear, it doesn't work. I've been told before, do it over. You know, do it again. Do it again. And what I'd like to ask you is how do you handle that? Or how have you handled that? Um, you know, uh, being in with someone and asking God to help me take away my fear of, you know, being disapproved by somebody in the moment is one thing. But when you're dealing with something big, something that has to do with a professional or, a, you know, a, a family illness, what, this is a professional matter. So, what? How do you? What would you tell someone who said, "You know, I've been doing my tents, but I'm still carrying it." Carrying the fear. Yes. Um. Hmm. 
again, you know, I'm not that quick on the draw, so nothing, no example in my life just jumping into my head at this particular moment. It might while I share, but... Um, I sometimes I it, is what you're saying that you're not getting an answer, or your fear is not being removed. Fear is not being removed. Well, when we do a ten step, and we've done it more than once, and the fear is not removed. Right, right, right. Okay. Um, well, I have heard it said that sometimes you know we have to dig deeper. That there's something underneath the underneath. And so we're focusing on the task at hand that's causing fear when really there's a deeper issue that maybe goes back to, you know, linking it to some similar thing from your childhood or um, some basic false core belief about that you have about life that's interfering with your ability to turn it around or to have God, you know, help you turn it around because you, you've got your heels dug in um, fixating on a belief that is probably, like I said, the boogeyman. It's not real it, or it's false. And um, we don't realize it until we do. And so... Um, you know, like I thought the resentment with my sister had been removed, but then I was able to see how I was um, competitive and um, um, judgmental and, you know, thought I was better than her and on my high horse. It's like until the resentment was taken away enough, I couldn't see the rest of my character defect, you know, which is why when uh, Lauren S. asked about the shift in six and seven and eight and nine, I'm like, I don't know, you know, like, you know, more and more and more gets revealed. So first you, you know, maybe get this baseline relief of, oh, at least it's not um, paralyzing fear. So that then you can soften your shoulders and your, um, mind and heart to let the next level of understanding come in and you think that's it and then no nope, there's more and there's more and there's more and it just keeps coming as we allow God in so we could go through the motions with the um, work and say the prayers and all that but we it's it's more um there's another level to it that perhaps you haven't availed yourself to yet you know and you could perhaps if that is the case i shouldn't be presumptuous that's a know-it-all kind of thing right there i don't know but maybe you could ask god to um free you from the bondage of self so that you can let the answer come in, you know, let the fear be removed. Because if we're hanging on to that fear with all our might, 
as we pray the prayer, God is not going to pry our hands open and yank it from us. I mean, he might, but if that isn't what's happening, he or she. Um, You know, ask him to unclench you so that the fear can be lifted out of you. I don't know if that's helpful. Rebecca, you you may not think you're quick on the uptake, but you hit the nail on the head. Thank you so much. Did I? Oh, yeah. Let's see. Thank you. Thank you. I want the uptake. (laughs) And Deanne F., please. Hi. Thank you. Good morning. This is Deanne F. from New York. Uh, and Rebecca, thank you so much uh, for your such a really heartfelt um, uh, words and stories. Um, I, I don't know if this is uh, if this is a question for the line, but I heard you refer to your higher power uh, in in a female kind of a way, and I was just wondering if that um, is something that you know you came to. Uh, how did you come to it? And uh, I mean, maybe it's you know unisex. I don't know, but I you know I'm just curious uh, about it. All right, now I got to come clean about that too, Deanne. So <laughs> sorry. Um, the truth of the matter is, I think he, I think he, I think he, I think he, I say he, I say he, I say he. But this time I'm preparing and I'm writing it down and I'm looking at the word he and I'm thinking that could be she. So I switch it to she. So then I'm thinking, is this dishonest? Because I really think he, but I want to look good. So I'll put she. And I kind of like did a number on myself about that he, she thing, you know, so I decided to stick with she because whatever, that's what I decided to do. And then I caught myself in the questions where it wasn't scripted saying he again. And I'm like, uh-oh, now I'm saying he when I said she before. And uh, then I kept saying he, she, or he or she, and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so um, you caught me. I've been nabbed. <laughs> I have no other answer for you than that. <laughs> I, I did not mean to do that. I, I I'm apologize. so glad. No, no need to apologize. It's fun. It's great. Thank you. <laughs> oh, thank you. Because I, I have that myself. So, uh, you know, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Deanne. And our final question this morning comes from Maura Z. Hi, Leah. Can you hear me? We can. Thank you. Thank you, Rebecca. So good to hear you. And, wow, I loved hearing all of um, the changes um, that you uh, have gone through that you were um, cognizant of. That's that's always the fun part. Um, my question is, perhaps has already been answered, but I'm going to try it anyway. So when you were sharing 
um, about fear in your in your presentation, you spoke of uh, stopping to pray. And my question is, do you do 10 steps or do you just um, pr pray on your fears as they come up? Okay, Morrissey. Um, well, I'd say it's all 10 steps, whether I'm praying when something comes up or I'm doing a formal uh, four through nine inventory slash sharing it with my sponsor, blah, blah, blah. Um, it's all 10, you know. And um, so I would say if it's something that seems to be easily addressed with a quick prayer, then that is the extent of it. And if it's something that continues to ruminate in my mind and causes me any sort of duress, um, restlessness, irritability, or discontent to the degree to which it's interfering with my serenity, then I, and the praying wasn't adequate um, to alleviate that duress, then I would do a more formal uh, four through nine. And really, I try to remember to do one through nine because I got to remember that I'm powerless over people, places, and things, and that food turns out to be just one thing that I'm powerless over, you know? And so it was a very uh, poignant um, element to learn the steps on, but really um, it goes above and beyond that. So I'm powerless, and um, I... Um, come to believe that a power greater than myself and turn my will and life over and blah, 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 before I even do the four through nine. And um, I don't do it all that often, the formal four through nine, but every so often I do need to do it. And then when other people do it with me, whether it be a sponsee or just someone who calls me with a 10th step, um, I usually can identify that someone called me last night at the 10th step and it kind of blew my mind. She, I don't even know if she realized she was calling for a 10th step, but I led her through a 10th step when she called me about what was bothering her. And she could see that she said she was playing a game, game of one-upsmanship and uh, that she, I think she even said she was on her high horse. And I'm like, wow, those are the exact words that I had just recently used the last time I visited my family in Florida. Um, and so I kind of relived it again with her as she was going through it. So because we're working with others, those, that 10th step is operating, you know, whether it's on my side of the coin or the other person's side of the coin, it's still the coin, you know, and we're all getting that 10-step work constantly, I would say. 
pass. Thank you, Maura, for the question. And, of course, thank you, Rebecca, for giving so much of yourself this morning with your beautiful presentation and examples of the transformation in your life. Thank you very much for your service. We're going to close from page 164. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.